Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 408 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Dillis Rose speaks with Doug Johnston about her literary work, including poetry, short stories, novels and historical fiction, the different technical challenges of each form, her collaborations with composers and artists, and her own visual arts practice. Dillis Rose was born and raised in Glasgow, but has lived in Edinburgh for many years. She's published 12 books, three novels, five collections of stories, and four of poetry, including one for young children. Her most recent publications are a novel, Unspeakable, a pamphlet of poetry, Stone the Crows, and a collection of short stories, Sea Fret. Her interest in creative collaboration has led to a song cycle, Watching Over You, and an opera libretto, Caspar Hauser, Child of Europe. Her writing has also featured in collaborative publications, including Twin Set, with artwork by Polly Thelwell and Laurie Hastings, and Once Upon Our Time with Moyna Flanagan. Her awards and fellowships include a Leverhulme Research Fellowship, the McCash Poetry Prize, and a UNESCO World City of Literature Exchange Fellowship. For nearly 20 years, Dillis taught creative writing at the universities of Glasgow, Strathclyde and Edinburgh. Since giving up teaching, she's been developing her visual art practice. She divides her time between writing and art. Dillis Rose, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Doug. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, I want to talk to you today about all your many various kinds of writing, working collaborations. So it's kind of hard to know where to start because you do so much different stuff, but I think, am I right in thinking that poetry was your kind of first love? Was that your first entry into writing? Yes, it was. I mean, I began attempting to write poetry, very bad poetry when I was about 16. It really was bad, embarrassing stuff, uh, uh, you know, adolescent stuff. And then I stopped for a while and then I sort of returned to writing in my late 20s. And yes, I started with poetry and then maybe a couple of years after that I started to be interested in writing fiction, but it took quite a while before I could cover more than two or three pages. Yeah. Just because I got used to writing very (laughs) short poems. That minimalist thing. Yes. I still prefer things to be short. Mm-hmm. I like short poems, short stories, and indeed short-ish novels <laughs> as well. So what was it about poetry that first attracted you? Were you reading a lot of poetry as a kid? You said you were writing as a teenager. Were you reading poetry then? Or? I did read some poetry at, while I was at school. Um, I think Tom Leonard's Six Glasgow Poems right. was one of the first books I got hold of. But I read quite a lot of various kinds of poetry. There was a good bookshop near where I went to school that that, um, sold little pamphlets, poetry from all over the world, really. And I I suppose poetry seemed the most personal kind of writing, and Mm. when you're an adolescent, personal is quite important, I think. That sounds incredibly progressive to be reading Tom Leonard at school. That's not something that, when I was at school, that was not something that was ever made available to us. Uh, no, it, I didn't read it in school. <laughs> right, I read okay. it out of school. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> as I said, I found I yeah. found these pamphlets and uh, of different writers in the bookshop 
and they weren't expensive, so you know we could buy such things. We did buy such things in those days. And I guess a lot of that, if you're if you're mentioning Tom Leonard, that must have been a really interesting experience because effectively it was you know the Glasgow voice. It would have been surely there would have been some recognition there of that's the kind of how people speak in the streets. Yes, although people didn't speak like that at the school I went to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I liked them because they were funny. Yeah. And because they were different and they were new and they were very short. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting you say funny because that's, there's a definite dark humour in a lot of your writing. I was, I was reading <clears throat> one of your collections of poetry and I ended up smiling at the end of almost every one. Is that, I wonder how conscious that is for you in your writing or is it just something that comes out of your own personality or your own style? It's funny because I remember a friend saying to me that she thought the writing, my writing was very funny, but I was very serious. <laughs> and it's probably true. And I don't suppose, I don't deliberately try to make things funny. When you deal, of course, when you deal with subjects which are serious, it does tend to help to have a bit of balance, you know, mm. a bit of dark and light. And I suppose the vein of humour going through it does offset the darkness of the subject a bit. It makes it a little bit more bearable sometimes. Mm. That's not. I'm not doing that deliberately as much as that's the way it comes out. I never set out to write a funny poem. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that there's humour in it because I think if I enjoy reading both fiction and poetry, which has an element of humour in it, there's not that much poetry that has not enough poetry, mm-hmm. maybe, I feel, that allows itself to include humour, other than deliberately kind of humorous verse or yeah. whatever, which isn't quite my style. Yeah, I sometimes feel that if you set out to write something funny, that would be, like, be the least funny thing of all time. Because right? as some people sometimes Probably. say about my more recent books, mm-hmm. that there's like, you know, it's dark humour in it. I'm sort of mm-hmm. quite confused by that, because I'm like, is there really? I didn't mean it. I'm glad it's there, but if I set out to do that... It would be impossible, I think. But in terms of the the poetry, it's quite it's quite hard to define what kind of poet you are. Do you ever think about it? Because I mean, there's there's like there are elements of there's experimental stuff. You know, there's elements of there's some collections that have that have concrete poetry and things like that, and and then there are other things that are you know really quite narrative poems as well. Yeah. Is it? I mean, obviously you don't think this this today is going to be a narrative poem, but it's um, I'm interested in that diversity of the styles is that you're kind of quite hard to pigeonhole well I think what happens is that I get into a certain mindset for a while I become interested in concrete poetry for a bit mm-hmm. and I stay in that seam if I didn't if I just said I think I'm going to write one concrete poem it probably wouldn't work I have to stay with that approach to writing for a bit before I see where it's going and then maybe I lose interest or I find interest in something else. I'm also, I think, always trying to find something new. I don't want to become set in my ways, even though I probably am to a certain extent. You talk about narrative poetry, and I think that's right because I write fiction as well. There's often a strong narrative element, but it depends on what's driving the poem in the first place. Mm-hmm how it's going to turn out. I'm not a planner, so I don't usually set out with a clear intention of what I want to do. But with with the, the last 
full collection of poems, for example, bodywork, it was themed. So I was, you know, thinking about areas of the body that I might work on. And so I'd have a little bit of a plan in that respect. But in terms of how the poem falls out, that's really dependent on actually probably getting the first line. Mm-hmm. Well, with concrete poetry, there's a, I think there's a very different way of working, reorganising things, mm-hmm. rather than a poem which starts with a story and tries to tell a story. I can only retain my interest in that form of work for a certain length of time, though, because it does start to feel a bit soulless, doesn't have the same emotional charge for me as other types of writing. So what about the most recent, your most recent collection, Stone the Crows? How do you think that compares to what you've done in the past? I'm not sure if there's any essential difference in the way I've approached it. Again, there are two or three ideas in there. There's a group of poems which all use collective nouns, as starting points, like Wake of Vultures and um, Murder of Crows, Lamentation of Swans. And again, I thought, oh, I might write a, a whole pamphlet using these terms of venery. And then it began to just seem artificial. So I wrote as many as I felt happy with and felt interested in writing, and then I moved on to something else. And then there are a couple of other little groups of poems in that, there are three poems about different dresses, all of which I owned at some point in my life. I'm still quite interested in writing more about clothes mm. because I think clothes carry, well, certainly for women, clothes do carry quite a lot of resonance. They, they carry history as well. They remind you of places you've been or people you are with. and Yeah, I think there's still more clothes to be written about. Yeah, so moving on, I was interested in you saying about um, one of the things that poetry, one of the reasons why poetry appealed to you is because of the brevity, and that's obviously the same with short stories. I was reminded of the reason Raymond Carver gave for writing short stories is because he could do it in one sitting, that he would write a beginning, middle and end of one sitting. Is that something that definitely still appeals to you? I don't think I can necessarily write it all in one sitting Mm -hmm. now, but I can read it in one sitting. And I think... I I like to read short stories a lot and that's partly why is because I can get a sense of the whole when I've read it, when I read it in 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Raymond Carver's short stories are very intense and um, dense sometimes and I can see how he might write it all in one go. But the other thing that I think that, I mean, you've kind of touched on this really, but the other thing that, some of the short stories and the poetry have in common is the short stories really feel like they're written with a poet's eye. The attention to detail, do you know what I mean? About how you describe a certain character or a place or a mood with, like, I, it's kind of as if it's a glimpse out the corner of the eye. I think I'm more interested in the glimpse in passing than I am in the extended narrative in the short story because I think a short story... Can a short story can be many different things. It can be simply a concentrated moment, or it can contain the best part of a life of somebody. Yeah. It's a very, I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to the short story is its versatility. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up reading short stories uh, more than novels. 
but it seems sort of criminally undervalued as a form. I mean, especially in the UK, I think, more than other places, maybe. I think it is very undervalued in Britain. I don't think it's as undervalued in the States or in Europe, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's much we can do about it, you know. <laughs> I published three books of short stories before I published a novel. I was determined not to be forced into writing a novel, but I think... That was a, probably a bad decision on my part. If I'd managed to get around to writing a novel sooner, things might have been easier. But at the same time, I didn't have an idea then that was appropriate for a novel or would have worked as a novel. So yeah. you work with what you have, really. Yeah, there's a strange idea in the US still of, you know, that young writers will write a short story collection, which is like a calling card, and then the second book is always the novel, as if they always had that in their back pocket, which I think is a yeah. weird kind of thing. They're kind of using it as a training ground instead of as, a, as an end in itself. Yes, I really don't believe that writing short stories is a springboard for a novel, because there, there are many things that are different about the two. Mm. One being that you don't usually have to deal with the passage of time in any, anything like the same way in a short story as you do in a novel. And I just think that they work in, in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I think they're equally interesting, but I'm honestly probably more drawn to the short story. Mm-hmm. I have managed to write three novels so far, which I'm reasonably happy with, but they were a long, painful experience, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> There was a lot of wrestling with them. I think it's the fact that a novel is too big to really keep in your head, to keep Mm. a sense of in your head. There are always parts of it that are sort of lurking in the background, needing to be dealt with. And also, a short story writer tends to want to hope to get everything right. It's impossible to get everything right in a novel, I think. Mm. I mean, word for word, sentence for sentence. Or you'd only ever write one book. Yeah. There have to be certain concessions when you write a novel. Which brings me to my question about you writing novels. <laughs> <laughs> so it did take you a long time. And was that just that you didn't have the right idea? Partly it was stubbornness on my my part as well, because I yeah. knew what people were saying about having to write a novel. I thought, well, I believe in the short story. I'm going to continue writing it. Yeah. But I honestly didn't have an idea which would have merited the amount of time and energy on it, I don't think, or or that would have benefited from being extended in that way. Mm-hmm. When you start writing poems, you get ideas for poems. When you start writing short stories, you get ideas for short stories, and I was getting plenty of ideas for yeah. them, and then there just came this idea which couldn't be done in the form of a short story, so I had to go a different way. And it was painful. (laughs) It was very painful, because I had to learn things that I didn't know. (laughs) And I don't know how you feel about writing, but I feel every time I start something new, I'm almost starting from scratch again. I don't have a great deal of confidence that I can pull it off, because I don't really know what I'm pulling off. Yeah. Trying to pull off. I think that's very common. You see, um, you know, beginning writers sort of saying, "Does it does it get easier with the more books you write?" It's like bad news. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid to say. If anything, it gets harder because you feel like you should know more, but you don't. It's kind of it's a weird thing. 
Well, I think every, every new piece of work, is a, there has to be an element of discovery in it for mm. you. Because if there isn't, there probably isn't going to be much discovery for the reader either. So there has to be an element of challenge to it. But sometimes I kind of think, well, does there have to be this amount of challenge? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, well, all three of your novels are very different. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, Unspeakable, because it was the most recent one. Yes. Which is based... Oh, it was very different from what you had done before across all your writing, really. It's a kind of historical novel based on a real-life situation with Thomas Akerheads. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the inspiration behind that? Well, there was a, a story went around our family that an aunt had been very interested in finding out that, that we might have been related to somebody important in the past and had okay. got hold of Burke's peerage and discovered, to her disappointment, that the only pe- only name that came up was the name of Thomas Aikenhead, oh. who was executed for blasphemy. And I'd heard this years ago, and it stayed in my mind. And I don't know, at some point it came back to me, I thought, hmm, that might be quite interesting to try and write about. And then I became... The business of blasphemy was very much in the news at the time, not so much here, but... People were being executed for blasphemy in different parts of the world. And I thought, the situation that he was in with regard to the power that the church had was not really very different from the situation that's happening again in different parts of the world. So I was very fortunate I was allowed to get some time off teaching and research the novel and given funding to do so. So yes, it was a it was a very different thing for me. I I had done some research before for mm-hmm. the first novel, but writing a historical novel had never really appealed to me before. And when I got into the research I found it fascinating. It's very difficult to stop doing the reading because mm-hmm. there's so much to find out about. I didn't really know how to go about it, but I just read and read and read read for about the first 18 months, two years. And then I had to try and forget about some of that reading and some of the notes I'd made and get on with writing the story. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it it reads very much... I mean, the best historical fiction is the stuff where the writer has done research but is not wearing it on their sleeve. You know, it's it's informing what they're writing but not hammering the reader over the head with it. And Unspeakable definitely does that. So how did you wrestle with the fact that you were dealing with real events, so it's the 1690s in Edinburgh, yeah, right, yeah. so uh, where Thomas was really executed for blasphemy. I mean, obviously some of what you've written is fictionalised. How, how did you go about that sort of balancing of things with the, the real documented facts and, and the things you were making up? Well, I found that we knew a little bit about Thomas's life up until the time that he became an orphan at nine, and then there was a gap between 9 to 14 when we didn't I couldn't find out anything about his life mm-hmm. and then I he came back into the research when he was around 14 when he became uh, matriculated at the university as a student he started very young then so I had to decide what to do with that gap of time he had a very short life so the, the, had to to stay within that time I decided that I would just have to make that bit up 
So I did. As far as his personality went, there was very little that was available either. We know, basically his main claim to fame was that he was executed. We didn't really know very much more about that. We didn't know about his personality. But the more I thought about him, the more I thought, well, he was charged with railing against the scriptures. So he was charged with making fun of the scriptures. So I thought, he must have been a bit of a blab. Yeah. He must have shot his mouth off. He might have been a bit cocky as well. So that side of things I had to just invent, really. There was something that was useful in that the, his basically his nemesis, Mungo Craig, the chap who denounced him in a pamphlet, was around at the same time as him. I didn't know if they actually went to school together or not, but for the sake of the narrative, right. it made sense that they knew each other at that time and then knew each other at university, because they did know each other at university. Mm-hmm. So I took some liberties like that in order to put together a coherent story. Yeah, and there's other like really interesting stylistic choices in that as well, because it's it's a kind of omniscient narrator. You're kind of jumping around, which I think is really it's not it's not very common these days. But you handle it really well. So so as much as it's Thomas's story, it's actually a story about the whole of Edinburgh, really, and about society at that time. It's kind of an overview of what it was really like. Yes, I mean, you know yourself that the decision about point of view and who's going to narrate a story is always quite an important one. And I did think quite a lot about how I was going to tell this story. And that seemed to me the only way to bring in some of what I had learned about the period was to use an omniscient narrator Mm -hmm. who could observe such a thing. I didn't think it made sense to write it from... Thomas's point of view, because that would have meant writing it from the point of view of a child, first of all, growing up. It's very restrictive, yeah. It wouldn't have have worked in terms of showing the cultural world or the social world in which he lived. Mm. Um, So I had to... Well, I didn't have to choose that, but that was the point of view that felt right for me. And uh, it's in Scots as well, there's a lot of Scots in it, but presumably not, I mean, I don't know, I have no idea. It's far too much work for me to think about a historical novel, but presumably not like 1690s Scots exactly, or we would never have, we would never understand it. So you're kind of, are you kind of sitting in a sort of middle ground, giving a flavour of of the language and the kind of the way that people spoke and the rhythm of it? Well, we don't know exactly how yeah. people spoke in those days. We, all we've got are written records, and written records are going to change it, mm. change the language. I made the decision to to use a form of Scots, but there are so many forms of Scots. And I think that all all dialogue is a construct, and it's mainly in the dialogue I'm using the Scots. Yeah. And I felt that I, we needed the sound of it a little bit, but it's probably, it's not based on any particular period as such, but it's it was a decision to make that in Scots it didn't feel right in standard English. Mm-hmm. And so it's an awful, after all. Yeah. <laughs> it's a story, it's made yes. up. You like to do what you want. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about your collaboration because you've done various different things. You've done mm. lots of writing that's accompanied music and 
accompanied art and you've got your own art as well, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So what, how did the, the music collaborations come about? You've done choral works and you're a librettist for things. How, when did that first come about? I was put in touch with a musician through a, a friend okay. who was interested in somebody writing a few songs that he was going to compose music for and going to work with a group of young people. So that was the, the first, and then we did another project together, another choral work for young people. One of them was on based on an old story up in Persia about the plague, in fact. Right. Cheery stuff? Yes, really cheery stuff. <laughs> but I remember the composer saying at the time when he was talking to these teenage school, school kids that were singing it, you know... You can be singing about the darkest things and really still have a great time. <laughs> and I think that was true about music. And uh, the opera that I subsequently did with another composer was about Caspar Hauser. It's based on the life of Caspar Hauser. And he had a pretty dreadful time too. Mm. I think I enjoy working with music because something great happens when you hear the words sung and something you can't do by yourself apart from anything. And what about other collaborations then? You've had at least mm. a couple of publications where you've worked with artists with your words. How do those things come about? Again, is it just sort of random contacts or not? Have you got a radar seeking collaboration? No. no. I, well, the first one was a proper collaboration between myself and a painter friend who was in the process of producing a new portrait miniatures for an exhibition at the, I think it was the National Portrait Gallery, yep. And we've been friends quite a long time and I like her work and I think she likes my work and we, we spoke about the idea of me developing some very tiny little stories or portrait miniatures, fictional cameos, I suppose, to respond to some of her paintings. So the way that, that happened really was almost wordless. She okay. just showed me some images and I looked at them and I wrote some texts. And in some cases I wrote some texts before I'd seen an image and she responded okay. back. So it was a, it was a two-way trade. Mm. But we didn't, neither of us would have interfered with what the other had done, really. <laughs> I certainly would have dared to interfere with her. The other pamphlet was a pamphlet which was two poets and two graphic illustrators. In that, that's called Twinset. In that one, it was the poets, myself and another poet who collaborated, and the graphic artists were brought in by the publisher later on. Okay. Well, it was a very nice result. But uh, the, po the poet and I who collaborated were... She is a Tasmanian poet who I, I met in Australia in 2006. And then she came over here. It was a sort of mutual exchange. I was sent to Australia. She was sent to Scotland. And so we decided to try and do a collaboration because we were, we were in different parts of the world. We were night and day. Yeah summer and winter, and so once a month for, it was meant to be a year, it took 18 months, but once a month roughly we wrote a poem on a agreed theme, and that's how we did it. So there are 12 poems from her and 12 from me. Okay. That was that was fun. Yeah. But again, we didn't interfere with each other's work. Okay. 
So we're still speaking. We're still speaking. Yeah. So what about, I'm really interested to talk about your own art. Uh, I know that you're, you're producing stuff. I had a look at your online exhibition <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant. I really loved that stuff. So there's kind of, um, well, how would you describe it? Is, is there maybe two different kinds of different techniques that you're using in that exhibition? Is that what you're still doing now? Uh, in that exhibition, there are a series of collages mm-hmm. and there are a series of line drawings done with gel pen, which were all based on life drawings that I did through the pandemic. Yes. All the work was done through... started at actually the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there were some online life drawing sessions that I attended because I used to do a lot of life drawing. Right. And I missed it as an activity, so I was very glad when the online session started up. So these drawings are based on the original drawings. They're not. They weren't done in the kind of detail that there is at the time. Cause you've only got ten minutes in a pose or whatever. Mm-hmm. The abstract collages were done primarily to cheer myself up in the first place because of the pandemic. And I, I was, it was actually quite hard to get hold of art materials for a while. Yeah. All the art shops were shut. You could buy stuff online, but you didn't always know what you were going to get. Yeah. And I decided that I've always liked paper, but if I have nice paper, I can't always do anything with it because I'm scared that I ruin it. <laughs> so I'm going to do something with the paper I've got. And most of these are paper cuts, hand cut with scissors. Right. And a lot of old uh, bits of music, manuscript paper, things like that. Again, I found the activity of cutting the paper quite therapeutic. Okay. There were also a decision on my part to literally try abstract work because up until then I had been pretty caught up with figurative stuff and I was getting a bit frustrated with it. I thought, okay. let's try something different. It's a bit like following something through, keeping on working mm-hmm. in that field and seeing where I can go, seeing what, what happens when I do this or what happens when I do that, and then eventually coming to a point where I think I've probably done enough. Is that a similar kind of attitude to the story writing or to the writing in general then? I think so. I think it's certainly similar to what happens when I get involved with concrete poetry. Okay. And, you know, there, there are certain restrictions that concrete poetry forces upon you and certain things you can do within that space or I can do within that space and other things that I can't. I'm still interested in collage. I'm still interested in abstraction, but I, for me, I'd like to, it to go somewhere slightly different quite like to get some sort of more atmosphere into collage somehow or other but I haven't got there yet and do you think there would ever be a project that involved you doing both artwork and writing well I've thought about it and other people have suggested it to me but I haven't quite got there yet okay I'm not sure if it's a good idea I mean I don't know I'd have to try I've avoided it so far. I don't think I would like to, for example, illustrate my own poems or anything like that, because I'm not an illustrator. Okay. I mean, if I found that things I had written went with things I had drawn, that would be a nice result. Yeah. (laughs) 
but actually deliberately coming up with an idea where I'd want to do both. Um, I haven't found one as yet, okay. but it's still time. And so what what's next then? If you Are you working on everything <laughs> all at once? Um, so do some art, do some more writing? Where are you? I'm working slowly on new poems. Okay. And I'm also going back to etching, which I got very interested in before the pandemic and then haven't been able to do it at all since then. I'm going back to etching soon. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think that's a good place to stop. Dillis, thank you very much for your time. Thank Great you. Great to speak to you. That was Dillis Rose in conversation with Doug Johnston. You can find out more about Dillis on her website at dillisrose.com. That's Dillis, spelled D-I-L-Y-S. And that concludes episode 408, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 409, Claire Chambers speaks with Anne Morgan about breakout successes, writing history convincingly, and retaining a balance between pessimism and optimism. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org. Thanks for listening.